The scripture for today's sermon comes from Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. The word of God speaks to us like this. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? This is the word of God to us. Thank you. Well, good morning, guys. Doing okay? <laughs> it's always fun each week to see how that's going to go. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're fine. We're fine. We're here, right? Hey, I'm glad you guys are here. My name is Chad Kinster. I serve as one of our pastors and uh, I'm really, really glad that you're here. We're, we're going to work through uh, this passage of scripture that was just read to us today from Mark chapter 8. So if you've got a Bible, uh, open up and, and, and uh, we'll be there. Um, and then also, if you're just jumping in with us, what we've been doing is we've been working through the gospel of Mark. And so it's kind of systematically, week after week, uh, we're, we're working through uh, what, what is the first gospel account, the, the account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And you think about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark was the, historically the first to be written. And so we were just kind of tracking through this, focusing on the person of Jesus, focusing on uh, the mission of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. And in the midst of an anxious world, in the midst of so many anxious systems that we operate in, what does it look like for us to be formed by the Prince of Peace? Uh, that's what's happening here as we chart through this book. And so uh, I want to pray to begin our time together, and, and, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Sound good? All right, here we go. <laughs> Father, we come to you today with songs, we come to you today with prayers, 
We come to you today eager to hear the assurance you give us in the gospel. We need it. And we also come to you today um, to encounter your word, to encounter your voice, uh, to encounter your presence. And so from the variety of places that we're, we have been this week and for all the ways that we're coming into this room, I'm reminded every single week that it, we show up here different each week because of what's happened over the last six days. And so God, I, um, I ask that, that there would be an encounter with you uh, that would minister to us today. Thank you that you never leave us empty-handed or abandoned. Thank you, God, that your word is never just sort of a rote exercise of emptiness. Um, God, we want, we want to reject religion, and we want to say yes to an encounter with the living God today. And so, Father, we offer this prayer in Jesus' name, asking that you would help us to understand, to see, and to enjoy your word to us in Scripture. We offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, well, I'm beginning today with what admittedly might be the most irrelevant reference I've ever made uh, to begin a sermon. And you're like, why would you even out yourself like that? That's not a good beginning, right? Uh, I do so because admittedly it's probably irrelevant, but I couldn't help but be drawn back to this reference this week uh, as I got into this text. Um, did, did anybody remember the movie, does anybody remember the movie in the early 90s, Groundhog Day with Bill Murray? You remember this movie? Uh, some of you were like, I wasn't even born then, right? Well, uh, I'm at the age now where like, I, I know things like this and I feel old. But the, this, whole, this movie was, was a bizarre, quirky movie. Uh, Bill Murray was this sort of um, narcissistic, self-entitled weatherman who felt like he deserved to be the star of the, the evening news. And he was sent out on location by his, by his network to do this small town um, festivity around Groundhog Day. And he felt, felt he was better than this assignment. He hated it. And what happened was he didn't, went through the day, but then he went to bed that night in that town that he didn't want to be in, and he woke up the next day and realized the day is repeating itself exactly as it was the day before in all the same ways, and he's stuck in this sort of this vortex of deja vu, right? And the movie goes on, and it's day after day he's stuck in this town repeating the day, the same thing as it was the day before, and he's like, how do I get out of this thing? This is my eternity. Is this, am I in hell, right, is what he's thinking. And the whole point of the movie was he's repeating day after day, but it's to get him to learn lessons about what it is to have fulfillment and happiness, not in circumstances, not in, the, the, not in the, the bill that life has given to you, but in the person that you're becoming to the people around you and what you make of the life that's been given to you, right? And you're like, thank you for that. Uh, spoiler, right? But if you haven't seen the movie, you don't need to go see it. It's just, it's just sort of out there, and it reminded me of what's happening in this text today, and I'll explain a little bit of that. We're in this section of the book of Mark today that's, that's like that. It's going to feel a bit like deja vu. We're about to see a string of events that replay themselves almost exactly. So if you jump into the second half of chapter 6 and you read through the first half of chapter 8 carefully, it reads like Mark is repeating himself and it's almost as if he's just trying to make sure you're paying attention, right? You read through this and you're sort of thinking to yourself, wait a second, did I just read that? Like, is there something messed up in my Bible? Did somehow, was there a misprint? The same things are, are repeating themselves almost down to the letter and to which Mark would respond if we were having a conversation with the gospel writer. Did I just read that? He would say, yes, you did. 
and I hope you're beginning to understand what's happening here. So let me show you what I mean. On the screen, I'll kind of capture for you this repetition of events. So where we've been in chapter 6, verse 30 to 37, you have this sequence. You have Jesus feeds the 5,000. You might remember that. And then he crosses the sea and he walks on water. And then there's this confrontation with the religious leaders, the Pharisees of his day, about their man-made false religion. And there's this argument he has with them. Then last week we talked about how he heals this deaf man by spitting and touching his tongue and he was healed. And then there was this confession among the Gentiles, Jesus is Lord. They end that passage there in 737 by saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf and the mute to hear, right? There's a confession of him as Lord. And then we open up here with our text today, beginning in chapter 8, verse 1, and here's the sequence of events. He feeds the 4,000. He crosses the sea. There's this confrontation with the religious leaders. He heals a blind man, again, by spitting, right? Again, we talked about last week. This is where WWJD doesn't always work out for you. He shouldn't, he shouldn't do that. And then it's going to end with this confession as Jesus of Jesus as Lord, but this time by Peter, which is going to be what we talk about next week with the high point of the book. The whole book is set out to say, Jesus is the Christ. Let me stack the evidence so that you can see it. And so this sequence of events repeats, and right in the middle of all that, in our passage today, Jesus is going to ask the question, you have ears, but can you hear? You, you have eyes, but, but can you see? Do you understand what's going on here? And it's not as though this is just a question that we're reading on, with black ink on a white page. If you read this carefully, as we're going to try to do today, it's as though the question that he asked then, meaning it to those disciples, still stands living and active today, and he's asking it to you. He's asking this question to me. You have ears, don't you? Can you hear the truth? You have eyes, don't you? Can you see reality coming in the kingdom of God through the person of Jesus? Do you understand what's happening here? So, so here's how we're going to unfold this today. We're, we're going to make relatively quick work of the first 13 verses um, just to see what's happening. I want to set you in the setting so that we can kind of feel the repetition of events. And then we're going to turn to verses 14 to 21 because in a really beautiful fashion, Jesus is actually going to interpret all of this for us. We're going to have to do interpretive work. Jesus will actually interpret this for us, and then we'll make some application to ourselves. So we'll jump in, verses 1 to 13. We'll read, and I'll make some comments along the way. So it says this. In those days, when a great crowd had gathered, when again a great crowd had gathered, so already Mark is trying to draw your attention to, this is not the same event with just different stats. This is a different event that is going to look almost exactly the same. Again, a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they've been with me three days now, and they have nothing to eat. And if I send them away, they're going to go hungry to their homes, and they will faint along the way, and some of them have come from a far way. And so the disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? <laughs> you would almost assume with the disciples experiencing almost the same kind of event with almost the same kind of setting that when Jesus says, I've got to feed these people, they're going, oh, I've seen this before, right? We've done this whole song and dance before, but they respond to him as though they have no recollection of what happened probably just weeks earlier, and they go, how can anyone feed this massive group of people? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And if you remember the feeding of the 5,000, this is the same question he asked them back then. They should have thought, okay, if I didn't get it now, 
I now know exactly what's happening here. You're about to feed this group of people. You've asked this crazy little searching question before. How many loaves do we have? But again, they still miss it. They said to him, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, just as he did before. And again, the disciples are thinking, we've seen this before, but they're, they're still yet missing it. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them, and he gave them to the disciples to set them before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and then they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said, there, he, uh, <clears throat> having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. In verse 8. It says, and they ate, and they were all satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces that were left over, seven baskets full. So everyone has not just morsels, not just a little snack. Everyone has a full meal. They're satisfied such that there's bounty left over, seven basketfuls. And it says, and there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples, and they went to the district of Dalmanthua. So then it says, the Pharisees, as he derives on the other side, the Pharisees came up and began to argue with him. And they were seeking from him a sign from heaven. Now, isn't that ironic, right? They've been around. They've been arguing with him the entire time. He's been healing people. He's been teaching as one with authority. They don't know what to do with him. They're trying to trap him all the time, and they can't trap him because he only speaks truth, and he makes complete sense. And then he starts healing people more often, and they're going, how come you're doing this? And by what power do you do this? You do so on the Sabbath. What's wrong with all this? And he says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Don't talk to me about the Sabbath. I created the Sabbath. And then all the while, they're seeing sign after sign after sign, and now they come to him, and they go, okay, we got to know what's up. Show us a sign. And Jesus responds to them, look at what he says, and he sighed deeply, like as if to be exhausted by this conversation with these guys. He sighs deeply and he says in his spirit, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation, and they left him, or, and he left them and got into the boat and went to the other side. And so Jesus responds to them saying, hey, I'm not going to play your games, like, like what, what's happening here in the ministry of the kingdom through healings and through miracles is not just a magic show. Jesus is saying, I'm not just performing tricks for the sake of performing tricks to make sense of my teaching. I'm doing so because this is the ministry of God to care for his image bearers in a holistic way, not with just a proclamation of the kingdom of God, but through good deeds to care for the poor and the hurting and the marginalized to see that the love of God comes to restore us as whole people. I'm not going to just perform tricks for you. And he says, no sign's going to be given to you if you haven't seen the signs by now. Now, this is the setting. This is the setting. So we've already had the feeding of the 5,000. We're coming back around and we're almost seeing the same events again be replayed with the feeding of the 4,000. And so now here we turn to the sense of all this. Jesus is going to connect the dots. He's going to apply this to us beginning in verse 14. It says, now they had forgotten to bring the bread. This is the disciples. They'd forgotten to bring the bread. <laughs> Remember the seven leftovers. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. That's one of the most ironic statements that's in this whole passage. They're freaking out because they're like, ah, the leftovers. If you remember the story before, right, they fed the 5,000, they gathered the 12 basketfuls of leftovers, and then Jesus walks on water out to them, and they completely bypass the fact that the dude walked on water, and they go, can you explain the bread? 
And then this time, they come around and they go, oh my gosh, we forgot the leftovers again. And it says, we've only got one loaf with us in the boat. Meanwhile, Jesus, the man who keeps multiplying bread, is in the boat. As if that's something to worry about. But they're freaking out about this. And he cautioned them saying, watch out, look out, be on guard, pay attention. You've got to buckle down here because there's this leaven, he says. There's this, there's this leaven, there's this influence, there's this rise of thought and of ethos from the Pharisees and this, this leaven of Herod. So back in first century sort of Palestinian life, talking about leaven was a common way of describing the will of evil in the world or the influence of evil things in the world, right? And so Jesus is saying, with all of this conversation now that he just had with doubt and skepticism of the sign of the feeding and then this argument with the Pharisees, he says, hey, be aware of this. There's this skepticism rising. There's this sort of doubt that's rising. There's this evil in the world that's rising to somehow put God on trial as though he's the problem in Jesus. He says, hey, be aware of that. Be aware of this influence of the Pharisees. Be aware of this influence as though God is the problem, this leaven of Herod. Be aware of those temptations, to say it another way, be aware of those temptations inside of you to not believe in God because he's not doing things your way. Translation. All of us experience that temptation, don't we? Things don't turn out the way I thought, so it's easy just to blame God that he didn't come through for me. Beware of that temptation not to believe because it's not going your way. Hey, beware of those temptations inside of you to not believe because you'd rather hold on in your life to what's comfortable rather than yield yourself to God. Hey, beware of that. Be be aware of that. And we'll, we'll come back to this in a second because this is the point of the passage. But keep reading in verse 16 with me. It says, And they began discussing with one another, The fact that they had no bread. So Jesus talks about leaven, and they're going, yeah, that's right. The the bread is the problem. They keep talking about the bread. We don't have any. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you guys discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Don't you remember what's just gone down now twice, almost exactly to the letter? Jesus is responding to them saying, why are you guys talking about bread as though this is what this is all about? As though the point of my ministry is to make sure that everyone has something to eat and there's leftovers. Why are you guys keep talking about this as though this is the point? And then he begins to have this father tone with them. This moment of confrontation that that maybe you might have had with a, 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 a authority figure in your life or a father figure. He says this in 19. When I broke the loaves... The five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you take up? And they said, 12. (laughs) You can imagine this is like a father moment because he asks such an indicting question that there is no other response than just the simple matter of fact, Uh, 12, sir, right? 12. And then seven, uh, uh, and then it says, and then the seven for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven, (laughs) matter of fact. And he goes, so he says to them, do you not yet understand? Do you not yet see what's going on? The point of this whole passage, the point of this whole event, the point of this sequence of events repeating itself 
is this warning that he gave us back in verse 15. I want you to be aware. I want you to be on guard in your own life against this influence of the Pharisees and the skeptics. What does that look like for us? I want you to be aware of these places in your life where you start demanding a sign from God as though he's out to serve you. Have you ever had that conversation with yourself or conversation with other people in a season of doubt? If I could just have a sign, if God could just give me a sign in this moment of darkness, if I, if I could just have writing on the wall, we might even say, if I could just have a sign as though God is your cosmic butler that's out to sort of meet all of your demands. I wish I could have a sign. Beware in your life of demanding the things from God as if the point of your life is you and God is only there to go retrieve for you your wildest dreams and then keep you from your worst fears. What's happening here is that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, had started operating in a kind of way that uh, a a term was coined years ago called moral therapeutic deism. And it's this kind of way that they were operating then, they wouldn't have called it that, but we operate this way too. The term is big words and you're like, the vocab lesson, that's not what we're doing here today. Let me kind of explain what's happening. Deism, a belief in God. But this belief in God is reduced to morality so that what's happening in religion is that we're reducing this to a moral transaction. God all be good, I'll be moral, I'll do the right thing so that when the dark day comes, you have to be good back to me because I've been good to you. Moral. And then therapeutic. I have, no, I, I have no real desire to submit my life to God. I just want him there to comfort me when things go bad. Right? So that God is just this sort of cosmic therapist in the sky that I'm going to have a transactional relationship with. I'll do good so that now you're in debt to me and you have to do good back to me. And this is how the Pharisees were operating. This is how Herod was operating. I'll call out to God when I need him, but I have no real interest to submit my life to him. Now, let's get to the tension of all of this. The central problem of all this frustration, of all of this angst, of all of this doubt, is that everyone is having all of these conversations about the kingdom of God. Everyone is debating about the nature of God. That's still happening today. But they're missing the fact that he's right there in front of them. So they're debating about what the kingdom of God must be like. They're debating about a sign. They're debating about the nature of God. All the while they're missing the man himself is standing right in front of them. They're talking to God. They're demanding a sign, but yet God in the flesh is standing right there in their midst. The disciples are debating about the bread and they're freaking out because they only have one loaf and they forgot to pick up the leftovers. All the while the bread of life is sitting in the boat with them. And Jesus is trying to help him see through this whole conversation about the bread and the leaven. Don't you see? It's not just like bread's magically appearing. It's flowing from me. I'm the true sustenance of the people. It's not that they just had their fill of their bellies. It's that they had their hearts fulfilled. It's that they had their whole lives restored. I'm the true sustenance of the nations. I'm true life. And they keep trying to make this about so many other things. And they're neglecting the most obvious thing. We've got to deal with this man, Jesus Christ. The point is not the signs. The point is not the miracles. The point is not even the teachings themselves. All of those things point to that man, Jesus Christ, who in himself is saying, I am bringing the kingdom of God. Don't you see it? 
And this is where the account starts to interpret you and me. Now we're out of the world of the first century as though it's abstracted. Now let's set this in our laps. How does this read us? How does this invite us in? Well, don't you and I do the same thing? I know as I'm reading this this week, I'm thinking, I do the same thing. We have the same tendency to get distracted by so many other things as though the other things that I'm distracted by are the point of my life. Think about the topics of our cultural conversation. Think about the topics of your even greatest personal concerns. So the topic of cultural conversation is sexual ethics. What's to be affirmed? What's to be approved? Cultural conversation around politics, right, left, blue, red, masks, no masks, vaccines, no vaccines, all these conversations. Conspiracies all around as though they're the point. Religion itself becomes cultural conversation. It's a failed institution. It's on the wrong side of history. You better figure out how to massage and negotiate if you're going to be relevant again, or maybe God is dead altogether. But then on a personal level, the conversation and concerns go like this, money, career, advancement. And so that's the point. The concern on a personal level with living an Instagrammable life, that if I can just have the filters all the right way, and if I can just present myself in all the right ways, and people will like me and comment in all the right ways, and if I can have a version of myself out there that I want to be perceived as, then maybe that version will finally become true, and I don't have to deal with the darker stuff in my chest when I lay my head on the pillow at night. The problem with that, and the problem with all those concerns and all those distractions is that we've tried all of that by now. We've tried to unlock life with all of that by now. We've tried to unlock life with sexual encounters and experiences and conquests. We've tried to unlock life by political ponderings and pontification. We've tried to unlock life by religious endeavors and moral efforts. We've tried to unlock life by money, career, and advancement. And we're still trying to do that even now. We've tried to unlock life, right, by just going, maybe if I can just have all the aesthetic the right way. Like the Pharisees, we've been seeking a sign from all of these things. But here's the problem. We still are the way we are. (laughs) And we still are where we are. And this is the cycle of the flesh, isn't it? The reason that I'm unfulfilled in this life, the reason I have so much discontent, is that I don't have enough. So let me keep seeking more of the stuff that I've already sought that give me discontent because the problem isn't with the stuff that I'm seeking to fulfill me. The problem is I don't have enough of it. And so we circle the wagons on pornography. We circle the wagons on career advancement and endeavors. We circle the wagons on more trinkets and bigger vacations and all of the amenities of life as though it's more of that that I need to finally be satisfied. But I want you to think for a moment with me. Think for a moment about what we're trying to break open. What is it that we're really trying to get at when we pursue these things? Pleasure, right? Pushing the boundaries of conscience around sexuality because surely there's some pleasure out there that's being withheld from me and so I've got to keep trying to find it, right? We're being drowned in our own pursuit. Death by pleasure purpose and meaning maybe it's going to come through money maybe it's going to come through career maybe it's going to come through promotions and an upward trajectory stability and significant 
significance, that maybe if I can just sort of be on the right side of the political conversation, the cultural conversation, if I can just have enough persuasion and debate. We want peace and self-worth, don't we? This endless treadmill of getting approval from others and grasping for the good life. And yet here's what's happening in the midst of all of those distractions, as if they're the point. This text stands here. This text stands here, unedited for over 2,000 years, the totally true, totally trustworthy, reliable word of God. This text stands as a prophetic witness against all of our running around in the rat race. This repetition of events is here to suggest, here's what it's talking to us. What if what you're seeking in the world so desperately, from everything that it has to offer, what if what you're trying to break open, what if it's already been broken open for you? What if it's been broken wide open for you? What if you're trying to grasp, what if everything you're trying to reach for has already laid its life down, rather has already laid his life down for you? The problem is you're seeking a thousand things, but you haven't dealt with the man, Jesus Christ. You gotta deal with the man. So let me track back down through it this way. We want peace and self-worth, but is there anything more dignifying than the Son of God coming and being broken for you. Is there anything more dignifying than that? (laughs) God sees my life as so worth it that he would lay his own down for me that I might have it new. Can anything be more dignifying than that? Is there anything more stabilizing? We want security and stability. Is there anything more stabilizing than the body of the Son of God being crushed on our place, on our behalf, so that every promise of God could be ours? You want security and stability? All the promises of God now belong to those who name Jesus. What are the promises? To name a few, he'll never leave you or abandon you. He'll always provide for you. He'll never let you go. He'll never lose you, but he'll most assuredly get you home. Sin will not get the last word on you, but the verdict of Jesus stands for you. It is finished. Is there anything more securing and stabilizing than that? Is there anything more pleasing? We're seeking pleasure. Is there anything more pleasing than being adopted to have God as your father through the passion and persistence of God the Son, being sealed up and reminded of that by God the Holy Spirit to prove that nothing can ever separate you from his love. Is there anything more pleasing? Is there anything more nourishing in this life and all eternity that the bread of life himself has been broken and offered to you So that through every high and stormy gale, our anchor would still hold within the veil. On Christ the solid rock we stand, for all other ground is sinking sand. Is there anything more nourishing? And so what Jesus was announcing to his disciples in this passage is the same thing that he's speaking to form us today. Lean in and here's the finish. Life, what all of us are trying to break open Life will not be found in acquiring Jesus, but then still trying to explain it in a thousand other things. It's not going to be Jesus plus. Jesus plus morality. That's sort of the Bible Belt MO, but that was also the MO of the Pharisees. 
Look at all of my religious laws. Look at how I'm keeping 614 commands of God in order to be right with him. It was, Jesus, you're coming and you're doing things I can't deny, but look at my morality also. Jesus plus morality won't work. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Jesus plus politics, it won't work. This was the problem of Herod, King Herod, who had John the Baptist beheaded because of prophetic witness. You're gonna come against my politics? I'll just get rid of you by chopping your head off. My politics have to live. My politics have to stand. My news channels have to be right. It's not gonna be Jesus plus politics. It's not gonna be Jesus plus the perfect marriage. If I can just have the most picturesque family. It's not gonna be Jesus plus career. It's not gonna be Jesus plus your, per, your bucket list. It's not gonna be Jesus plus finding the perfect spouse. I'm not saying that morality is wrong. Just let him form it. It's Jesus and then he forms me into moral goodness. I'm not saying that politics is wrong. We should be in the public square speaking on behalf of the common good of everyone. But it's not as though that saves anyone. Let him form it. The marriage, the family, the career, the bucket list, the spouse, none of that's wrong. It's just Jesus and let him form from there. It, maybe to say it on a bottom line, if life could be found in any of those other things, then we would have found it by now. If life could be found in any of those other things, then we would have found it by now. And if life could be found in any of those other things, then why did Jesus have to come at all? Why did God send his son if I could just find life in a thousand other pursuits? And if I could find it there, then why did he have to die? That feels like divine child abuse. No, 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 no. He didn't die because life could be found somewhere else plus him. He died because life could only be found in him, in our place, for our sin, that we might stand righteous before a holy God. And so Bill Murray was in this crazy movie called Groundhog Day. where events and sequences were replayed over and over again in order that he might learn a lesson. And sometimes God repeats himself because he intends for us not to miss him. That's exactly what's happening here in the book of Mark in this section. Jesus says, he looks at you and he looks at me in the eye and he says, I want you to be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees. I want you to be aware of the leaven of Herod. I want you to be aware of all the things that are pressing in on you that tempt you to miss God altogether. Be aware of those things because they're all around you. The temptation to miss God, the temptation to off-ramp into something else is all around you 24-7. It doesn't take a break. And the repetition is telling us It's not going to be in pursuing those things. It's going to be in dealing with the man, Jesus Christ. And the question I want to end with and give to you today is where is Jesus inviting you to deal with him? Where have you been bypassing a conversation with Jesus? Where have you been bypassing a moment to deal with your own conscience? Where have you been bypassing a moment to deal with your own derailing of a life of following Christ and trying to make the issue something else. Where is Jesus inviting you to deal with him? Let's pray together.
Father, I just want to say, gosh, would you please forgive me? Would you please forgive us for all of the ways that we bypass you in order to keep ourselves busy with other things? as if they're going to unlock life for us. Would you forgive us for all the ways we're trying to break open life through the pursuit of our wildest dreams when your son has been broken wide open for us? God, I don't know exactly know how you would invite everyone in this room to deal with you. I don't know how exactly how you'd invite everyone in this room to be honest with themselves and to come before Jesus and to cry out for help. But God, I pray that you would draw all of us by the power of the Spirit to deal with Jesus. Not just the level of do we believe in him, but at the level of where are our lives, lives aligned or misaligned. Father, would you help us seek alignment with your Son? We offer this prayer in his name, amen.